Hi, my name is Anna Cole, and the Old Testament reading is found in Deuteronomy 16, 1 through 3. Wait for the month of Abib, at which time you must perform the Passover for the Lord your God, because the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt at nighttime during the month of Abib. Offer a Passover of sacrifice from the flock or herd to the Lord your God at the location the Lord selects for his name to reside. You must not eat anything containing yeast along with it. Instead, for seven days, you must eat unleavened bread, bread symbolizing misery, along with it because you fled Egypt in a great hurry. Do this so you remember the day you fled Egypt for as long as you live. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Linda. The New Testament reading is found in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 through 10. Make no mistake, God is not mocked. A person will harvest what they plant. Those who plant only for their benefit will harvest devastation from their selfishness. But those who plant for the benefit of the Spirit will harvest eternal life from the Spirit. Let's not get tired of doing good, because in time we'll have a harvest if we don't give up. So then, let's work for the good of all whenever we have an opportunity, and especially for those in the household of faith. The word of the Lord. Please rise for the reading of the gospel. My name is Stephen, and our gospel reading for today is found in Luke chapter 22, verses 7 through 20. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And they said to him, excuse me, he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after he had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, the gospel of the Lord. Well, this is the third and final part of a, of a series we've been in called Given. Now, here at New Life Downtown, one of the ways we talk about who we are as a church is to use table language, the, the table of the Lord language, blessed, broken, given. And New Life Downtown is part of New Life Church as a whole, and New Life Church tends to use these words, worship, connect, serve, and blessed, broken, given really overlaps with those movements. When we say the word blessed, we're thinking about our gatherings. We're thinking about the reason we gather as a church and remember the blessedness that we have in Christ Jesus. This is why our services are intentionally centered on Christ. Our services 
take the shape of a gospel story. The, the preaching of the word is followed by a confession and the reminder of, uh, of the grace that we've been given. And we come to the table with thanksgiving and we worship and exalt Jesus. And then we're commissioned back out into the world. And so that is the blessed piece. But this series isn't about that word. And then there's the broken piece, which Evan was alluding to. That's the sharing of our lives and vulnerability and trustworthy community. And so much of that takes place in our meal groups. And this is not a series on that word. But this is a series on that third word, given. Blessed, broken, given. And if you think of these movements, it is the Lord's table on Sunday, blessed, our table throughout the week, broken, And then given is where we begin to prepare a table for others. And so in this series, we've we've talked about what it means to be given first for the church and how everybody who serves here, whether as a meal group leader or on our Sunday teams, you're helping to prepare a table for others to come and meet with Jesus. But then the second week, we talked about being given for the city and to say, listen, as a church, we don't exist for ourselves. We are here to see Jesus be lifted up, to see the city itself called to Christ. And so we talked about practical ways that we partner with different organizations in the city. Well, here we are in week three, and it's now given for the world. Now, there's, there's probably already some goodwill when you hear uh, a pastor talk about a church doing something for the world. In fact, you're probably listening to Matt and Nikki and Chris talking about Children's Hope Chest and our partnership there with this community in Swaziland. Some of you are thinking, where is Swaziland? Um, it's, it's an independent kingdom just next to sort of within South Africa, but it's on its own. Uh, it, it's, it's a place of tremendous need, and, and it's a place where Children's Hope Chest has allowed us to take one specific community and be a partner with. Now, when a pastor says a story like that or shares about a situation like that, many people think, oh, this is so great. I love this. We're doing something special for the world because justice is in right now. Justice is hot right now. We love it. I mean, it's like it's so in that you almost are shocked when you buy a product that is just a product. You mean this shirt doesn't also rescue traffic victims? You mean this is just a soda? This is just a bag of coffee? Doesn't it also free slaves? I'm saying this tongue-in-cheek. It is overall a good thing that we're so mindful of ways that we can be engaged in the world. But the question I think that looms is, what fuels Christian engagement in the world? What is it that fuels Christian engagement in the world? Because all of us know justice may be hot right now, but what happens when it's not? And if that is our drive, it's sort of this thing of like, well, we have to, we just need to, and we've got to. You know what that can easily kind of deteriorate into is is shaming the people who don't. You don't recycle? (gasps) You drive a Hummer? (laughs) And so there's just the chic, but then there's the shame. That we do to others. Oh, so, so you don't. You're not ethically conscious, whatever, you know. So if that is our fuel, we're going to end up being proud of ourselves and shaming others. Or maybe you say, well, Glenn, no, that's, that's not why I care. I, really why I care is I'm a humanitarian. I care because of human dignity and I care because people matter. And, and that's 
that's actually really good. But the, the trick about the human dignity motivation is that easily slips into a superiority complex. And that, that easily becomes this condescending thing of like, hey, you poor, precious soul that doesn't recognize its own dignity, thank God I'm here to remind you of how much you're worth. And suddenly these things sort of sneak in. And if that becomes our fuel to say, I'm such a good humanitarian, it's also a way of our feeling good about ourselves. So, well, Glenn, that's not why I'm in it. I'm not in it because justice is hot. I'm not in it because, uh, you know, I'm a humanitarian. I'm in it because I want to see results. I'm in it because I want to see people changed. I want to see numbers rise of the people. Okay, listen, results, that's a great reason to do this. Arguably, it's a wonderful thing. We want to see change. We're in this because we believe we can make change, right? But the trick about results being the only motivator, and, and mark my word, their only motivator, is when results become your only motivator, you tend to steamroll over anything else that stands in your way of results. And so then you say, well, I don't care. The ends all of a sudden justify the means. And so then you start saying, well, I don't care about what this person says or that person says. We are headed that way, baby, and so out of my way. Now think back to the 20th century and think about how many, how much violence was done in the name of human progress, of an ideal of results, of saying, listen, this is the ideal, and all who stand in the way are going to be annihilated because this is what we need. When you make a god out of results, you make people less than human. When you make a god out of results, you make people less than human. You say, well, they don't matter. My results matter. And so as Christians, this cannot be the sole fuel for our engagement in the world. And I think the dilemma that we're faced with in our generation is this. The motivation for engagement in the world is high. Excuse me, the expectations for engagement in the world is high. We ought to, we ought to, we need to, we must. But the resources for motivation are questionable at best. And so we know, yes, I want to, we ought to, we should. But how? How do I stay focused? How do I stay engaged? What is the engine of our social action? Are any of these things adequate on their own? Our text this morning In Luke 22, if you turn with me, we heard it, read the gospel text. We'll just look at the first four verses first for a moment, verse 7 through 11. And then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover had to be sacrificed. And so Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? In verse 10, he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where's the guest room where I will meet with my, eat with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now I wonder if, this, <laughs> if we can look in this text and see just a little bit with poetic imagination here, kind of a model for engagement. Now I, I, I want to give this caveat. I know that what I'm about to say is not what the text means. And we're about to move on in the sermon just to treat the text properly in second. This is what the text means. So I'm preempting the red flags that are about to go up, okay? (laughs) And the emails that you might send during the sermon. (laughs) 
But I can't help but think just a little bit poetically about this scene. Jesus says you're going to find a man carrying water. He's going to, there's going to be a master of the house, and there's going to be a room that's fully furnished. And I, I wonder if this is a bit of a model for preparing a table, a model for going into the world and preparing a table for people to meet with Jesus or for Jesus to do his work. And if we were to kind of look at it poetically and say, what, what, what is this model like? It would be finding an inroad i.e. the man carrying water, finding a gatekeeper, the master of the house, and finding existing infrastructure. And in a very real way, this is the reason why we do partnerships with other ministries, because if every church recreated something from scratch, you're not often have, you won't often have an inroad actually on the ground, you won't have a gatekeeper who's actually on the ground. And there are not in existing infrastructures. So you, there are times when you need to do that in pioneering work, but there are other times where you look for that and then you work. So for us, one of the things uh, Chris and Matt and Nikki were saying, Children's Hope Chest is just the facilitator of this, but there are local leaders, indigenous leaders on the ground in these communities in Swazi. There are uh, pastors and there are developing leaders that have gone through, Chris referenced this, that have gone through the leadership development program so that this is creating long-term sustainability. Some of the missionaries have created four or five different enterprises from um, sp uh, selling scrap metals to cabbage farms, and then the cabbages themselves go on to feed the various different communities. And the ones that graduate can have the opportunity to run some of those enterprises. So there's infrastructure that has the, the capacity to carry on long after we're gone. And I want to just say this as a way of a thank you to all of you. The primary way that support goes to this community is through sponsorship, individual children's sponsorship. Now, we know lots of ministries that do, do child sponsorship, and it's all wonderful. The way that, that this works is a little bit unique in that there's 150 kids in the community. I think 60 or so of them are sponsored. The money from that sponsorship goes, though, to providing care for the whole community. And so the more kids in the community that are sponsored, the more there is in the pot for the whole community. But there have also been um, projects that have been done. And a couple of you, I, I don't, they don't want recognition, but I want to say this because they're part of our church. A couple of you have in different ways, uh, through business and through other um, means, provided some extraordinary funds for special projects. And because of those gifts one-time gifts, we've been able to begin construction of a preschool. And there's going to be soon, you heard Chris allude to this, a greenhouse, a water tank and stand, electricity for the church there, an education fund for, for them when they grow up to be able to, to join the Leadership Academy, a medical fund, seating for the playground, and more. And so thank you for that. Thanks for being part of that. Now, we go back to the text here and you say, okay, Glenn, now, can we, can we really talk about this text? Because Luke didn't write Luke 22 with Swazi in mind, you know, that's true. Nor is this meant to be kind of this paradigm for all missions engagements. It's not, but I couldn't help but point that out. Jesus is there because he's celebrating Passover. And maybe for many of us, we need to stop and say, what is Passover? What, why were they celebrating this? What, what is this meal? So our Old Testament reading this morning was a reminder of that in Deuteronomy, the people of God are reminded, listen, you celebrate this meal to remember the night that you fled out of Egypt on the run where you had to eat this meal standing up. 
and you couldn't wait for the bread to rise and you, and you ate the meat with bitter spices because it was a reminder of how your time here has been bitter and yet the Lord has delivered you. If we were to think of themes connected to Passover, certainly the first theme that would come to mind is freedom. The theme of freedom. But then there's also the theme of worship. Because Moses, remember, he said to Pharaoh, he says, God says, let my people go that they may worship me. That deeply embedded in the story of Passover and rescue is this call to be a people that worship. But then there's also the theme of judgment. Now, we don't often think about this, but the people of Israel were freed from Egypt while judgment came upon Egypt. And so Passover carries in this a theme of judgment. Now, we're going to come back, we're going to come back to that, that this morning because judgment is the other side of the coin of justice. So for all of us who love justice but are nervous about judgment, we have to recognize that part of justice (laughs) requires judgment. And so when God delivers the oppressed, he also judges the oppressor. And we can't sort of pretend to be these happy, feel-good Christians who are like, I just love justice and the love of God. And then we say, well, you know, justice involves God judging. Oh, I don't know about judgment. But a theme of Passover is judgment. And then maybe one more theme we see in Passover is this theme of mission. Why? Why was Israel being rescued so they could carry out the mission that God had placed on Abraham himself all the way back saying, look, I am calling you and through you, through your family, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And as they zigzagged their way in faithfulness and unfaithfulness and found themselves as slaves, God says, I'm rescuing you Because I want you to know that your mission is not yet complete. Now Jesus sits at Passover and all of a sudden reinterprets the story through himself. Jesus sits at this table and yes, he's hearkening back, but he's also saying something special is happening now, right here. Something that you could not have imagined. Verse 14, and when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And when he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this with you before I suffer. And I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he goes on and he says, look, this cup. This cup speaks of me. And he says, this bread, this is my body. This cup is my blood. Jesus is doing something extraordinary here. One of the themes that the gospel writers, particularly Matthew and Luke, really try to drive home is that Jesus is seeing himself as the embodiment of Israel. Jesus is the one who sums up Israel's calling and fulfills it, brings it to its completion. Jesus is saying, listen, I am the people of God summed up in myself. I am the one, the seed of Abraham. I'm carrying this mission to completion. But Jesus is kind of everywhere in this story, isn't he? Because he's also Moses, the deliverer. He's the one delivering them out of captivity, yet he is Israel. He's the one who will go to the cross to be the Passover lamb. Every part of this Passover story is now being reinterpreted, redefined around Jesus. 
Jesus is saying, look, I'm reenacting the Israel story, but I myself will be the deliverer. But actually, it's even more than that. I myself will be the sacrifice, the Passover lamb. In the previous stories that we've explored in this series, there's three table stories in Luke, the feeding of the 5,000, Passover, and then the meal with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. All three of these stories have the blessed, broken, given language, not just motif, but language. And we've covered the other two, the bookends. This middle one is different because at the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus is this incredibly generous host. At the meal with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, Jesus is the stranger that they welcomed in who became the host. But now here at Passover, this is totally different. Jesus is not just the host. He's the feast. Jesus is not just the host, but the feast. The one who says, it's me. It's my life. It's my body. It's my blood that means you're free. It's my life that now means you can worship. It's my life that means you now have a sense of mission. It's my life that means that judgment no longer falls on you, but on me. Now think of that. Because of Jesus, we sit here this morning and say, I am set free. I'm not bound to sin, I'm not bound to the guilt. Not bound to the shame. Because of Jesus, I can worship. I've been, my eyes have been lifted up. I'm in relationship with God Himself. Because of Jesus, I get to join this story. I now am part of this mission, this story. But you know, one more detail about this table. Think of who was there. A few verses later, Luke 22, verse 21, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Isn't this striking? I mean, to include that at this table, it's not just Peter who will become the head of the church, John the beloved, but Judas the betrayer. At Jesus' table is the very enemy. (laughs) I think of Jesus possibly refiguring the words of the psalmist. Psalm 23, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And Jesus kind of saying, actually, I'll prepare a table for my enemy. Here's Judas here. Here's Peter about to deny me, (laughs) Judas, the one who will betray me. All right. It's the table of Jesus that fills our hospitality to the world. It's the table of Jesus that is the engine inside of us that keeps us saying, yes, I want to serve the poor. Yes, I want to give my life to rescue victims. Yes, I want to do this. Yes, I want to give. Why? Because I'm a humanitarian? No, because I was Judas. Because I was Peter. Because I was a sinner. Because I used to be there, and yet Jesus welcomed me in. 
I think of Paul saying in Romans, we, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we counted God our enemy, he gave himself for us as the very feast. You see, church, the engine that drives our engagement with the world is the gospel itself. It's the gospel itself. Not our kind-heartedness, not our humanitarian concern, not our awareness of human dignity or our belief in causes. Ultimately, what drives us every day is the gospel itself. It's the recognition that without Christ, we would be slaves. We would be bound. We would be on the wrong side of judgment. Without Christ, we would be lost. But with Christ, we have been fed and filled and rescued and changed. How could we not prepare a table for others. This is the thing that fuels our care and our concern. As we think about this as a church, one of the reasons we come back to the table again and again each Sunday is to remind us of this. Lest we go out in the world and do what we do and come back on Sundays and pat ourselves on the back and say, man, you're so great. You're so awesome. You're such a good Christian. We come to the table week after week to say, God, thank you for giving me your life. Thank you for feeding me with yourself. Thank you for your body and your blood. And freely we have received, freely we give. This is how it goes. So week after week we rehearse this. Yes, Lord, thank you for the blessedness that we have in you. Yes, Lord, thank you, God. And now we let our lives be broken and shared, and then we say, and God, in your hands, make me given for the church, for the city, for the world. Amen? Would you bow your heads with us this morning? Just think for a moment what a tremendous gift it is that you've been made right, that your heart has been set right. We've been reminded this morning of the mess in the world. But James tells us that all of this comes out of the human heart. The violence and the mess that manifests in the world ultimately is rooted in sinful human heart. And the miracle of the gospel is that Jesus comes to begin to mend that, to fix that, to heal that, to cure that. And then having been made right, we are invited into this, this work of setting things right wherever we find them setting unjust infrastructures right, setting oppressive systems right, setting things right because we've been set right. So the best way for us to respond this morning is to invite the work of the Holy Spirit into our hearts again.
to say, Lord, would you continue to set me right? Continue to heal me, continue to reorder my desires, continue to rearrange and realign my heart. St. Augustine talked about sin as being so much about disordered loves. And maybe the best place for us to start with our response this morning is to say, God, reorder my loves. Reorder my heart. Reorder these desires so that I don't try to engage in the world because I think highly of myself, but that I can engage in the world because I've been rescued, redeemed, I've been fed at the table. Did you pray about that this morning?